Thanks for tuning in to the ICEF podcast. This episode is sponsored by SRH Harlem Campus, the Netherlands' newest study destination. I think everybody is in an institution of higher education to progress their career, whatever their career is. So yes, it's always been there, but it's way more pronounced now simply because the current generation is more focal about it. They're very, very clear. This and more in this new episode of the ICEF podcast. Your monthly review for education professionals in the international student recruitment industry. Be sure to subscribe via your favourite podcast player and join us for a new episode available every month. Thanks, Lucinda, and welcome back, everyone, to the ISEF podcast. My name is Martijn van der Veen, and as in each month, we will start this episode with some recent news and developments before we dive into our main topic. And this month, that is career opportunities for international students, which is since many years the number one decision-making factor for prospective international students. Then, after a short message from our sponsor, SRH Harlem Campus, we will conclude this episode with our Keys to the Market section, where this time we will zoom in on Nepal, one of the rapidly growing South Asian source markets for international student recruitment. Coming up, the main topic of discussion for this episode, but first, as in each month, we kick off with a look at some recent news and developments in the international student recruitment industry. So for our first section, news and developments, I am, as always, in the pleasant company of Craig Riggs, Editor-in-Chief of ISAF Monitor. Craig, welcome back. Uh, it's summer vacation time here in most of the Northern Hemisphere. Are you going to be traveling anywhere soon? And if so, do you need a visa? <laughs> yes. Well, thanks, Martin. Very nice to be back with you, as always. And I'm based in Canada, just traveling within Canada this year. So no visa required. Well, count your blessings, because as you know, for international students, the visa application processes in nearly all major study destinations have become true hurdles or even deal breakers for international students. In the US, interview appointments for student visa applicants are currently averaging at 49 days, that's seven weeks or 10 weeks if it's working days, compared to only 10 days pre-pandemic. And uh, But on a more positive note, the UK was dealing with similar delays. However, they have resumed priority visa processing, bringing the process down to five days or less. So Craig, if you ask me, visa application processes are now an important factor for students, schools, and agencies to take into account, or are visa processing delays only of temporary nature? Well, unfortunately, the former. I think that the, the, the issues that we've been seeing, we've been tracking this throughout the year, and you know this, these last few years, obviously with the pandemic and then sort of recovery from COVID, has been a story of like structural issues that are impacting international student mobility. You know, before it was vaccination requirements and travel restrictions, border closures, things like that. Now it's more like flight availability and visa processing in particular. And in major destinations around the world, we've been looking at significant backlogs uh, throughout this year, simply because most countries suspended consular services, including visa processing services, for significant periods during the pandemic. The example you point to of the US is, is, a, is a great illustration of this, where visa services were suspended in most consulates and embassies, uh, US posts around the world, until about February or even March of this year. And so they're dealing with a substantial backlog that's accumulated 
throughout that period, as well as the surge in visa applications now that mobility and normal travel is starting to resume closer and closer to, to pre-pandemic levels. So that's resulted in, in a significant backlog and much longer processing times. As you say, the student visa processing and in the US, that's roughly five times the wait period on average that it was before the pandemic. And so that backlog looks like it's absent any extraordinary measures on the part of uh, the U.S. administration, that backlog appears likely to persist for some time. One of, one of the examples we highlighted in our coverage was the uh, case of the uh, U.S. Embassy in Kenya that is uh, has an advisory on its website saying that they're booking for business and travel visas. Their, the earliest appointments they're offering is sort of, you know, second quarter of 2024. So it's like we're talking about, in some cases, delays that are measured out in periods of longer than a year. Do you see that across all major study destinations? Because I would expect that if you're a country that understands the value of international students for their local economies and for their employment market, that they look at this as an opportunity to distinguish themselves from other destinations. So is, is any of the study destinations uh, ahead of the others in terms of visa processing? Yeah, I think so. And you see this consistently reflected. I mean, there, it, it goes to show that you can take steps as, uh, as a country, like the immigration administration or even executive of, of, an, of a national government can take steps to move on visa processing. And even in, in the U.S., there's precedent for that, where under, under President Obama, there was an executive order that, that visa processing times had to be driven down below a certain level. And sure enough, that happened. But the administration has yet to take similar action in, the, in our current context. What we do see, like in the example of the UK, uh, who's also been dealing with a significant backlog, we see that their performance is improving over the course of the year. Wait times for, for US visa processing are actually getting longer as we move through 2022. Uh, we can hope that that will improve, but for the moment, they're, they're trending in the wrong direction. Uh, the UK, however, has been widely recognized as, as performing better in this respect. You know, you see this reflected in Asian surveys and, and other indicators where students are having better access to visa services and getting turnaround on visa applications more quickly. Earlier this year, the UK was averaging about five weeks for a student visa application processing time. And now, as of about a week ago, that's down to three weeks. So they're trending obviously in a, in a better direction. And I think most students that are planning for longer term, term study abroad, if you're anywhere sort of two to four weeks, you're probably at a very comfortable processing turnaround time for most students. Right. So we're talking backlog and staff shortages, right? So less people available to deal with more visa applications in this case. Exactly so, exactly so. Yeah. When you say backlog, it sounds like something that's going is, is really temporary, but you said earlier that this is something going to last for a bit longer. Do you have any idea well, how long that would be? It's going to vary by destination, but the amount of processing to be done is so significant. Yeah, it's going to take months to resolve in most cases. And there's, you know, what we're really focused on in these uh, statistics is new visa applications, folks that are applying from outside of the country, intended destination country, for a new visa of whatever type. One of the analysis that we looked at this week was talking about what is lying behind that is kind of a shadow backlog of renewal processing and things like that. Most people, uh, as I mentioned, I'm based here in Canada, uh, for Canadians trying to get passports this year, is there's a significant backlog, a significant difficulty just to get you know, a passport renewal or a new passport to leave. So most immigration authorities around the world are dealing with this challenge. And, it, and it's, you know, we're seeing a variety of measures being introduced to try and speed processing, but for the moment, it's, it remains a significant issue. 
right? So institutions, schools, and agencies need to be way more proactive in their recruitment process as it's stretched out now because of this backlog and, and students need to apply way earlier for yep. their schools to ensure that they are in time with their visa application. I, I think that's the obvious implication. I mean, leave more time and quite a bit more time in some cases for visas to be processed. Take extra care to ensure that the visa applications that you file are complete and correct. There's nothing missing. There's nothing that's going to cause that application to get bounced out of its normal processing cycle. That's always good advice. This year, it's more important than ever. Right. Thanks, uh, Craig. Now talking about staff shortages, that brings me to career opportunities. And that also brings me to the main topic of uh, this month's episode. And now for the main topic of discussion for this episode, we look at career opportunities for international students. Future career impact has consistently been the top priority for prospective international students, while earning potential has become much more important over the past years. To better understand what this means for institutions, schools, and their strategies to attract more students, and to see how this focus on career opportunities affects the appeal and the format of work and travel programs, for example, We've asked industry specialists, Nanette Ripmeister and Adam Cooper to join us. A uh, warm welcome to you both. Uh, may we start with a quick introduction, such as your, your background and the affinity with uh, today's topic, please. Nanette, why don't you go first? Okay, so my name is Nanette Ripmeister. I'm the director for iGraduate North America and Europe. And my other role is for expertise in labor mobility. I'm for a very long time, I won't state how long, but really a long time active in international uh, higher education, internationalization of higher education. I started working at the European Commission in Brussels in the field of mobility for people. And it's always been an attraction factor to me to see how education and the world of work connect and how the differences are in that whole sphere. So that's for a long time been a red thread in my career. And with our graduate, the research points into a certain direction, which we're going to be talking about later on. But that's a little introduction for my side. Thank you, Nanette. Adam. Yeah, my name is Adam Cooper. I'm uh, currently the president of Alliance Abroad Group here in the USA. We're a uh, Department of State designated US sponsor, multiple different programs under the Bridge USA program. So Previously, before that, I was also working with STA Travel, ran STA Travel for about 15 years here in the USA as well. So I've been around the kind of student travel world for a long, long time. Uh, and indeed, my career actually started by um, actually coming on a cultural exchange program here to the United States and working at a camp. So kind of feel like my life has come somewhat full circle in the last few years here, but uh, certainly I'm enjoying this opportunity to talk to you and um, I'm loving kind of working in the cultural exchange space as well. Wonderful. So you practiced what you are preaching. Yes. Craig, may I ask you to maybe set the stage for this conversation to provide a little background on, on how future career impact and earning potential relate to the other major decision-making factors for today's prospective international students? Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, I think this is well established at this point that, you know, career outcomes, uh, postgraduate employment opportunities and employment outcomes are huge factors in student decision making planning for study abroad. I think it's fair to say that over the last several years, and particularly as we come out of the pandemic, 
we're seeing a sharper and sharper emphasis on career outcomes for students and factoring into their decision making. And we see that across, you know, research in the sector, and particularly from some of the research that Nanette has helped to share this year from uh, iGraduate. I mean, we, we always pay attention to the iGraduate International Student Barometer. It's one of the very large scale uh, student surveys in our space. And because it's a survey that offers some, you know, longitudinal findings that, that have occurred over, over a longer period of time, it gives us some indication of how that decision making is changing, you know, around the world over a longer time frame. And it's very clear from those results that, uh, that future career impact, uh, if we can put it that way, one of the most important factors for students today. Nanath, may I ask you, hasn't that been the case all along? Isn't that why they're studying for to prepare themselves for a future career? Uh, it's an interesting topic. Uh, in fact, I had a mo this morning a, a meeting with a vice president, and he, he was almost surprised that students get into a choice for an institution based on their future career opportunities, because there's also gaining knowledge, uh, growing academically. And I think this is exactly where the problem comes from. When I studied, in the previous century, I literally studied with the idea of growing my knowledge. And I knew when I said that I wanted to use that knowledge to get a good career, people were frowning a little bit because what do you mean with a good career? And um, it was almost seen as something you wouldn't say out loud. But I think that all of us, um, irrespective of our ages, all studied with the idea it will help us advance in our lives whatever that career uh, sort of looks in it I'm always surprised that we say well academic growth and academic careers as if those academic jobs aren't jobs at all mm -hmm. I think everybody is in a institution of higher education to progress their career whatever their career is so yes it's always been there but it's way more pronounced now simply because the current generation is more focal about it. They're very, very clear. And I think something else is the matter with this generation. This generation has the feeling as if they only have one shot at, at anything, at happiness, at getting a partner, getting a house, getting a job, getting into a university. And well, we're all at the age that we know you get several shots in life, not just one, but they're firmly believers that it's just one shot and that one shot has to be the lucky one. So I think this this current generation has been so focal about it that it finally has sort of sunken in with others that this is a key issue. I think right. all of us are convinced it's a key yeah. issue. So it's almost I the same as uh, COVID shots, right? It, it started with one, but we keep getting them. <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it feels a little bit like that. Well, it's it's one of those things where, uh, yeah, COVID might, might the COVID shot might be a good one. You need one, and then you need to keep. Um, it's like a, a continuous learning, education permanent. You constantly have to keep up the level to be well protected. Right. I think your anecdote from your meeting with the vice president is really telling, though, in in that sense, in that there's almost a tension. I think we have to acknowledge there's a tension within higher education in many respects between the acquisition of knowledge for knowledge's sake and the acquisition of knowledge or training for career outcome. You know, I think for frontline staff or academic advisors or for, you know, uh, student counselors, admissions officers that are more directly engaged with students, I think that greater emphasis on career outcomes is probably more clear 
but for executive or other senior staff, I think it's I think that tension is very much in play, and and for for many in the academic community. Nanette, the uh, the results of the barometer that Craig mentioned earlier, the iGraduates 2022 barometer, suggests that institutions that prioritize students' career goals are more likely to be perceived as delivering value for money. And in addition, yeah. the study found another strong correlation. Students are more likely to recommend an institution when they believe it has prepared them for a good job. Now, here's my question. It seems that the focus of institutions is usually very much on the top of the funnel, on student recruitment, less so on career services, for example. But I, I could be wrong. But do you feel that institutions in general realize enough how career services are not only crucial for the end of the student journey, but are also such an important distinctive factor for their student recruitment efforts at the beginning of that student journey? Oh, I wish I could answer that with a positive yes that they knew, but I don't think they, they do. And I realize I work with many institutions across the globe and I graduate works with an even wider group all over the globe. There's some people that understand the importance of graduate outcomes also for the recruitment but i think a lot of the institutions don't realize that uh, the parent company of i graduate tribal also has financial benchmarking and they did a survey uh, a while ago it's a, it's a financial benchmarking survey and it shows that the investment in recruitment of students is nine times higher than the investment in learning people about careers well that's already a very telling one it's of course i understand where it comes from because it's very obvious you have to get them in because that's where the revenue also comes from but i've talked to institutions that said well once they're finished it's not our responsibility but i think it, it's not a lifetime as a responsibility but that first initial step is definitely a responsibility of for institutions and if they understand the importance of recommendation and attraction of new students, I think that would be really a worthwhile step into the future because I don't think we're there yet. Yeah, I can only agree with that. And Adam, I'll get to you in a second. One more question for, for Nanette. So you're saying it's very important for schools, institutions, agencies to realize this challenge or opportunity to provide the right career services. But then then we get the next challenge, because career guidance in itself has seen quite a bit of disruption. The conventional CV and application letter are no longer the standard, especially for the next generation. Uh, LinkedIn profiles often enough to replace the conventional CV, applying for jobs via social media channels, using videos, animations, no longer unique, but becoming mainstream. Job markets are rapidly changing due to technological advancements. Today's degrees may not always fit tomorrow's job market requirements. And on top of that, there are more and more options to work remotely or to be a digital nomad. Do you think it is at all possible for schools, institutions, agencies to keep up with all these developments? Or would this be more of a responsibility or opportunity for a third party, perhaps? Career guidance professionals, employment agencies, digital credential providers, work and travel providers who help to bridge that gap between degree and career options. Yeah, and I want to add something to it. You mentioned that CVs, resumes, as they are called in some countries, are changing. But I think there's an even more important one, which we don't realize that often. Uh, Craig comes from a country where if you would put a picture on your CV and tell them your nationality and uh, your date of birth, you're probably not going to get invited for a job interview. Whereas Martijn and I come from a country that if you don't put your picture on your CV and you don't tell your place of birth and date of birth, you will not get invited because 
What are you hiding? So cultural differences are an even bigger thing that I think we should not underestimate. And no matter the technological advances, those cultural differences are constantly there. And I think, yes, institutions should do a first step, but why not bring in providers? I'm involved in an initiative called careerprofessor.works, which helps people understand how different cultures play a role in job hunting. Adam is involved in other things. I think bringing in providers to fill that gap is a, is a really smart one because it's a too big thing for universities on its own, but it starts with the universities acknowledging the importance and the, the need for them to address it. It's a really joint effort by the players in our industry. Yes, of definitely. And some of these players provide work and travel programs. Adam, with, with international students focus on career opportunities, I can only imagine that work and travel programs are a very important part of that equation to get students ready for their future careers. Is this indeed the case? Do you see an increase in institutions, agencies to provide these programs responding to an increase in demand from youth and students? Yes, I think it was mentioned of this earlier. I can certainly talk for myself, you know, um, 25 years ago, coming across to the States on a, on a work exchange program as well and kind of learning some of those skills as well. But I think the, the demand on our work and travel program, so, so just for the distinction we run, you know, I probably group our programs into two separate groups. So we have our shorter term programs, our summer work and travel, and then we have our camp programs as well. And then we do have our more kind of career focused programs, such as our intern and trainee and our teach programs as well. I certainly think that the demand for the summer work and travel program has always been massive. You know, I mean, I think there was a, there was somebody asked me the question the other day in terms of, hey, do, do employers see value in that program as you're going out? Kind of thought to myself, I said, well, surely the answer is yes. But I had to Google it and say, well, you know, what are the stats actually behind this? And obviously, you know, there's a, there's a great deal of value in terms of, you know, how employers view the ability for somebody to kind of step outside of their kind of day-to-day, -day, take a risk, you know, learn new skills and do all that kind of stuff. So I think the work and travel program, you know, again, has always seen huge demand. There's been a moratorium on the program from the U.S. Department of State since 2011, so numbers have not increased on that program. You know, for the most part, every year, you're going to reach the kind of the maximum amount of participants on that program, which is, which is wonderful. But I think where we have seen a lot of growth, specifically coming out of COVID, has been in our more career-focused program. So intern, trainee, where you do have these large kind of labor shortages, you know, coupled with the desire for students, I think, as Nanette mentioned, to be more vocal and be more forceful about, you know, how can I further my career? And they're looking into these different opportunities. I think then combined with the fact that people have been kind of cooped up at home for the last few years during COVID, I think has kind of created this almost perfect storm of kind of supply and demand and, you know, the increase in, I guess, the leveling of the playing field as well in the programs as well with the, you know, the host employers having such a need um, and seeing such value in the program that I think that the conditions and the competitive nature for the programs as well has also increased. So one way of saying, yeah, we're seeing massive demand for these programs this year specifically. No, but that's great. That's great. And massive demand in numbers. But I can imagine that with the rapidly changing employment market, I can only imagine that this requires adjustments as well in the types of work and travel programs, including their, their format, their duration. What are some of the examples that you can give us? Yeah, so I think, it's a, as I mentioned, I, I do think that there's a leveling of the playing field where we're probably in days gone by. Uh, there was such high demand for the program that employers could 
hey, provide a reasonable experience for students coming over. And it was, it was kind of accepted. You know, I remember when I came, it was great. I'm going to America. Like that's a successful program for me. But I think certainly now there's a lot more focus on, you know, what are we teaching these students when they're coming over? What are they learning on the job? How are we helping them to improve their English? Making sure that there's the element of cultural exchange that's kind of sitting within the program as well. So I think that that, that has been a change. But again, I think the, the noticeable difference in, in the kind of volume amongst our programs has been the pretty rapid increase against um, the more career focused programs that we run. Right. Now, according to your website, uh, I love the statement what you write there. It says we become fuller versions of ourselves when we travel and have an overseas work experience. It also says that friends will take notice and employers will too. What are some of the qualities that students gain from an overseas work experience that are so important, especially now when they focus so much about their career opportunities? Yeah, great question. And again, like, you know, thought this was a universally kind of accepted thing that, you know, this is something that employers certainly value. But, um, you know, if I think about, you know, our shorter term programs, you know, it's certainly brushing up on English skills, making sure that, you know, I think from certain countries as well, you know, the work and travel program is certainly a kind of rite of passage. Um, and I don't, I, I think it's, it would be kind of remiss to, to also underestimate kind of this, um, this kind of kinship through experience as well, you know, for certain people like, hey, I'm going home, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to people, I might be interviewing with someone who's experienced the same thing as me. And I think so, where you have countries where it's a very prevalent program, where you've got a large percentage of the population that may have been through this program, I think that's certainly a, a great kind of conversation opener as well. And then obviously on our more career focused programs, it is certainly about it's, it's 12 to 18 months of on the job training frontline. It's typically a phase training plan that we implement there so that we are um, confident that the host employer is going to provide a, a truly valuable experience to those students. And then they're able to kind of go and, and take that back to home countries and, you know, new skills, new standards, whatever it is to be able to then go and implement them back in their, their home country as well. So, I mean, I think there's a, there's a ton of value in that, but, but again, I, I do think there is a, there's an inherent kind of some character um, qualities that are, that are displayed by somebody who is willing to, to kind of take the opportunity and, and, you know, head out overseas and be flexible, improve their communication skills. You know, there's a, a myriad of different things. The famous or infamous soft skills that are just as important. There you go. To, uh, yeah, absolutely. For, for your job opportunities. And then that, has our graduate include any research on these work and travel programs and their importance for the students' options in the employment market? No, not so much, but in my role for expertise in labor mobility, I've been part of two um, Erasmus Plus programs. And in one we uh, called Erasmus Skills and the other called Erasmus Jobs. We both looked at what's the impact of study abroad, because as Adam said, we, we all understand that there is a positive impact, but how do you come up with stats? And it's pretty difficult to come that. up with stats, to measure it. Because mm -hmm. if you ask, in, in one of the programs, we ask the students a pre and post. And uh, then you get the problem they have to sort of say if they're good at intercultural skills, for instance. And you had people that said, yeah, I'm really good at intercultural skills pre uh, going abroad. And then they went abroad and they were like, oh, my intercultural skills were maybe not as good as I thought they were. So it's really difficult to measure the impact, but there's more and more 
Uh, I'm involved in several projects where we try to measure. I know in Australia, there's a project happening with Davina Potts, where she's trying to measure the impact of people that have been. So looking at alumni, what's been the impact on your career. So there's more and more being done research, but I graduate at now we don't have any good stats that will help you. But it's interesting what Adam said, because in one of the projects, we did come up with a list of seven skills that both students and employers mentioned as being um, the skills that they both believe that you gain when going abroad. Right. Interesting. Well, I think indeed we can all agree how important these experiences are, overseas experience, intercultural experience, soft skills, etc. But now to uh, conclude this uh, main topic, I'd like to ask you, uh, uh, Craig, we've been discussing now this future career impact has been consistently the top priority for prospective students. Earning potential has become much more important. Where do you see this development over the next five years? Will they remain at the top or is this like a temporary trend? Nope. I think it's very much a lasting trend. Uh, we've seen this developing for some time, as I said earlier, and all of the indicators that we can see suggest that this is going to be an area of greater and greater emphasis for students and, and parents and, and planning for study abroad. The part of that derives from the longer term effects of the pandemic, the economic effects of the pandemic. Part of it derives from the fact that the mix of international students continues to change over time. You know, in, in previous years, uh, when I started my career in international education, which I can measure it out in decades, so I'll, I won't, <laughs> I'll, I'll stop there. You know, there was much more emphasis on just on, on cultural experience, you know, having an international experience in, in, in a true sense. And that's still obviously a very important part of what study abroad offers to students of all types. But it's unquestionably the case that, as we said at the outset, there, there's been a greater and greater emphasis on career outcomes Part of what's happening along the way is that the, we're drawing students from a wider and wider range of countries, and especially countries in uh, South Asia, in Africa, to some extent in Latin America, where issues around affordability, opportunities to work both during and after studies are huge factors for students. And so I think that is, is the longer term kind of structural factor, if you will, that is going to continue to, to, to lend a lot of, of weight to career outcomes and student planning. Right, so it's a really uh, a focus on the return on investment. Yeah, this is this is true. Incidentally, this is not particular to international education. I think in many countries and many developed economies, there's much greater attention on return on investment for for higher education, for degree qualifications. Um, you know, there are lots of issues to be raised around affordability, and so we see this being reflected in international mobility as well. Thanks very much for this, uh, Craig, and thank you so much, Nanette Ritmeister and Adam Cooper for your valuable contributions. If anyone wants to get in contact with Adam or Nanette, you can email us at communications at ISF.com and we will put you in direct contact. Thank you very much. Coming up, keys to the market, where this month we focus on Nepal. But first, a message from our sponsor, SRH Harlem Campus. Harlem Campus invites you to explore their brand new and state-of-the-art campus strategically located in the city of Harlem. Your students can reach the beach in Zandvoort in 10 minutes or Amsterdam in just 15 minutes by train. Harlem Campus is a new joint venture between SRH from Germany and Global School for Entrepreneurship from Amsterdam. 
Harlem campus offers three undergraduate degrees in business psychology, digital transformation management, creative media, as well as a Master of Science degree in applied sustainability management. All programs are taught in English. Their unique campus building is located in Decoupel, surrounded by local businesses and startups. Decoupel is an iconic building which used to be a prison and now has been converted into an education and business hub. You might know that housing is a big issue in the Netherlands, not with Harlem Campus, as their students have guaranteed on-campus housing. Harlem Campus has students from over 25 nationalities and is currently looking to partner with agencies worldwide who have experience in recruiting students to the Netherlands. If you are interested to learn more about Harlem Campus, you can meet their representatives at ISEF Barcelona or visit their website on www.harlem-campus.com. And now for the final section of this episode, it's Keys to the Market. And this month we focus on Nepal. Nepal is a country in South Asia along the southern slopes of the Himalayan mountain ranges located between India to the east, south and west, and Tibet autonomous region of China to, to the north. In size, it's comparable to a country like Greece or New York State, but in terms of population, it's larger than Australia, for example. There are more than 30 million Nepali with more than half of them aged younger than 25 and a recent rebound of their economy. Nepal is definitely a market worth considering for student recruitment professionals, I'd say. What do you think, Craig? Uh, 100% agree. And I'm sure many educators in major destinations around the world would, uh, would agree as well, because they've certainly been seeing more Nepali students in their classrooms uh, over the last several years. So, Craig, often we discuss these uh, upcoming student recruitment countries as countries with a large youth population and with a growing economy. I would imagine those are the same factors here in Nepal or are other factors that make Nepal such an interesting market for student recruitment perspective. No, absolutely true. What we often refer to as those fundamentals of an important growth market are certainly present in Nepal. There's a large youthful population, a college age population, as you say. The economy has shown good, strong growth uh, over the last decade and more. So not surprisingly, there's, there's a growing middle class there as well that's well capable of financing uh, students for study abroad. And so those are all you know, key factors that we would look for. The other thing that is an important characteristic of Nepal, I think that's a little bit different than some of the other markets that we look at, is just the proportion of college-age students that go abroad to study. You know, one of the indicators for mobility that we watch from UNESCO, for example, is uh, what's called the outbound mobility ratio. And it's exactly what you think it is. It's the percentage of college-age students that go abroad uh, for their studies. And in Nepal, it's just considerably higher than it is in many of the other markets that we look at. Like it's, it's, it's routinely in the low 20s, like sort of 21, 22%, which is a very high proportion indeed. That compares, for example, to a ratio of about 10% for Sri Lanka, right? Another market that we've considered recently. Or less than 10, typically 7 to 8% for Vietnam, which is another you know, widely recognized important growth market in Southeast Asia. So that's a key characteristic for Nepal, certainly. Just that there's a very clear climate uh, culture of study abroad there and a very, very strong motivation on the part of students to seek studies overseas. Wonderful. And I can imagine, of course, that for institutions that are looking to diversify their student population, Nepal is definitely an interesting country to consider, along with the other country you just mentioned, Vietnam, mm -hmm. Sri Lanka, and 
it's it's starting to factor. It's quite noticeable, in fact, in the in the in the few years leading up to the pandemic, and and now in, in, in last year and this year again, it's it's quite noticeable that Nepal is starting to register among the fastest growing sending markets for some of the world's major study destinations. Like uh, for uh, for this year, it's one of the top four sending countries uh, for Australia, for example. Uh, for Canada, uh, really significant growth. The number of Nepali students in Canada has doubled over the last few years. So it's a uh, that you know underlying that is a is a really significant growth trajectory and outbound from uh, from Nepal. It's it's the 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 you know the UNESCO estimates, which we always characterize as as fairly conservative estimates of actual outbound flows, nevertheless still show more than a doubling of outbound numbers for Nepal in the five years leading up to the pandemic. So the the actual growth was something like 132 percent over that period. Uh, so 132 percent overall growth over say the five years leading up to the start of the pandemic that's that's pretty attention getting and though and that overall growth is really being reflected in the uh foreign enrollment the composition of foreign enrollment in major study destinations like i say you see it especially in australia which is far and away the leading destination for nepali students um, but also in other destinations in asia in canada in the us as well wonderful well there are obviously countless agencies in Nepal as well that help students choose the right program, the right destination. And then there are those that are screened uh, screened by ISEF. And so for those interested to connect with high quality, carefully screened Nepalese study abroad agencies, you can find them at our global networking event, ISEF Berlin at the end of October, at some of our destination events, such as ISEF San Diego in December, and of course at ISEF South Asia in Mumbai in February next year. For a full overview of all our upcoming events, you can visit isaf.com slash events. Thanks, Craig, as every month. And thank you, Nanette and Adam, for your valuable contributions. And thank you all for listening. We hope you will tune in again next month. For more information about the topics we've discussed in this episode, please visit isefmonitor.com. And don't forget to share your feedback and questions with us directly via podcast at isef.com. Thanks for tuning in to the ISEF podcast. This episode was sponsored by SRH Harlem Campus, the Netherlands' newest study destination.